Rėmėjęs Benedikto Gylio paramos fondas. Sveiki mokslos riubos podcasto klausytojai, su jumis Agnius ir šiandien mes turime ypatingą svečią iš Europos kosmoso agentūros ir kuris dirba su James Webb būtent teleskopu ir jis mums papasakos daugiau apie jį, ilgai lauktas teleskopas, jau kitais metais turėtų pasiekti orbitą ir tai yra Tim Rule, yes, so we will switch in English now, so first question, let's say, what brought you here in Lithuania? So we're here in Lithuania because our telescope is an observatory. We're putting this telescope into space next year and anyone in the world can propose for time to use the telescope to observe what they want in space. And we really want the European community to propose as much as possible and get some really good science data for our community. Mm. So we're going all around Europe uh, giving workshops on how to write proposals, how to... Um, how to think about the instrumentation that's on the telescope so it can get the best data and hopefully get uh, accepted time. So all the scientists in different countries have, you know, has an opportunity to figure out some kind of, you know, proposals to give that they would get some data to work on. Exactly, yes. And and what is your part, let's say, in, in all the uh, project? In the project, so I'm an instrument scientist for one of the instruments. So the telescope itself is a major NASA project, but it has a big contribution from both the European Space Agency and the Canadian Space Agency. And Europe's contribution were two of the four instruments. So we actually have mm -hmm. uh, half the instrumentation there was built in Europe. Um, I work with one of the spectrographs. So this telescope can take both imaging. So we're all quite familiar with the Hubble Space Telescope, I hope, which has been producing beautiful images now for 30 years. Uh, this new telescope is a successor to Hubble. Um, mm -hmm. And as well as imaging, it's also going to take spectra of objects. So this is really telling us for some of the chemical composition of objects and getting more in depth on uh, how they are made and uh, what they consist of. Uh, so our near spec instrument the spectrograph is concentrating more on that side um, but it's a beautiful instrument and it was built in europe and our job our team of 15 people actually live in the us at the moment mm -hmm. um, we're there to help the americans operate our instrument let's maybe you know move back in history a bit sure. uh, first let's start with hubble which is the predecessor of james webb so uh, what does the main object is? What is what's the history of the Hubble? So Hubble originated in the late 80s and was launched in the early 90s. And its main aim was originally to try and look as far back into space as possible. So I say far back <laughs> into space because we're looking a long way away. But as you look further away, you're also seeing objects as they were uh, closer to the beginning of the universe. Yeah, you, you need to think of telescope as a little time machine. Exactly, <laughs> they really are. <laughs> um, so Hubble has a really large mirror. It's two and a half meters in diameter. And that was limited, the size of the mirror was limited by the size of a space shuttle that launched it. Mm -hmm. um, 
Astronomers always like more glass, bigger mirrors, so we can gather more light and also see further with that. So James Webb then is bigger, better, more sensitive. And I... I heard that there was a flood with a uh, Hubble telescope. Yeah. And they, they say amateurs mistake on this kind of project. <laughs> so Hubble was famous for grinding their mirror incorrectly. So it had the wrong curve, so it didn't focus properly and the imaging was very blurred. Luckily, though, they did grind it perfectly incorrectly so they knew exactly mm. how they ground it it was just wrong so it's just the wrong shape but they knew how to correct it so they actually sent a second shuttle up and put people a couple of astronauts went in and pretty much added a contact lens which then made it so it was a perfect mirror again um, and that was why for the last 30 years Hubble has been giving us such amazing images and what was the you know expected lifespan of Hubble So originally, with most of these space missions, the expected lifespan is of the order of a few years, so five, six years. Uh, Hubble was lucky in that because it's in a, an orbit around the Earth, it's only about 500 kilometers in altitude. It's relatively easy to get to, relatively easy for space travel, of yeah. course. Uh, so you still need a spaceship. And the shuttle was around, so they could go and repair instruments. They could put new instruments in over time, replace other things that are wearing out, like the, the solar arrays, which gather the energy for the telescope, mm -hmm. were replaced a couple of times. And that meant that the lifespan could be extended from the original five, six years all the way up to... It's 30 years old now and still going strong. But uh, what kind, let's say, what kind of discoveries it led to with the help of Hubble? So it's made a, a large number of discoveries. So all the way from uh, it's imaged very nearby objects, stars, and started to try and see planets around other stars. Um, imaging those is very difficult, um, but Hubble has opened the way to be able to do this. Uh, it's also, um, it can look into s the birth regions of mm -hmm. stars in our own galaxy. So really uh, large imaging surveys of regions of our own galaxy to see how the stars move around each other and also what they're composed of and how they might have originated. Then pushing even further away, it's been extremely good at taking images Uh, of nearby galaxies, so outside our own galaxy, but in the local mm -hmm. region, which tell us things like uh, how, what they're composed of, the chemical con consistency of um, the stars within them, and also the gas and dust that mm -hmm. make up galaxies, because galaxies are made up of not just stars, yeah. but also lots of other material as well. And then pushing even further back, one of the most famous things Hubble is known for are the deep fields, the ultra-deep fields, Yeah, I have this uh, on my computer's wallpaper. <laughs> It's a beautiful image. So the original idea of this, and I think that this actually wasn't an original idea when it was launched. It's something mm -hmm. that they thought about later. And that's the beauty of these observatory class missions is that you make a telescope that is has a lot of functionality. And then even if you don't have the idea originally, later on, it's still capable of doing things that you hadn't even thought about years before. So what they decided to do was just stare for a long, long, long time at what looked like a piece of blank sky. And what they saw was this famous Hubble deep field where it was just full of galaxies. So not just staring for minutes or hours or even days, but weeks and weeks of time just looking at one spot. 
And if you see this image, I recommend everyone yeah. go and have a look at this image if you haven't. I think we will <laughs> edit on top of this video uh, that so. everyone <laughs> will see that. Uh, so you'll see just lots and lots, hundreds of thousands even, of points of light in this image. And every single one of those is a galaxy. And it's just an amazing view. Not not star or, or a planet, a star. but other yeah. galaxies. Yeah, so each of those galaxies is billions of billions of stars. And they're all, uh, I mean, they stretch a, uh, a different range of distances, but the furthest ones away in those deep fields are uh, like 12 to 13 billion years old at this point. They're only a billion years after the Big Bang. And what's the fate of uh, Hubble? Because we don't have a space shuttle to send uh, astronauts to help it to repair some things. And so, yes, unfortunately... It's a little bit up in the air still. I mean, I have heard talk not that long ago about people really wanting to do another servicing mission, not with a shuttle, of mm -hmm. course, but with capabilities of new companies such as SpaceX. They're developing all sorts of aims where they want to go to asteroids and mine them, and they're certainly returning to uh, Moon and Mars are on the horizon for NASA. So all of these things mean that we don't really know what capability we might have in the next five, ten mm -hmm. years, in and servicing Hubble again might be one of those. If not, the instrumentation on Hubble is relatively new, actually. The last servicing mission wasn't that long ago. It was um, ten years ago or so. Um, so the latest instrumentation is um, still working fine. There's no issues mm -hmm. with those new instruments. To orientate uh, Hubble to look at the right thing, it has some gyroscopes on board. It uses these uh, wheels and gyroscopes to get the right attitude. And those are the things that wear out first. But they still have several left. And they used to be able to have to run Hubble using three of them. And they use some incredibly uh, amazing uh, just coding um, to be able to run Hubble first on two of them and then on one of them. Um, so even if we lose all but one, Hubble will still be able to operate and point relatively well. So we'll still be able to look at stuff in great detail. Mm. So Hubble could last. I don't want to jinx it, yeah. <laughs> but Hubble could last another 10 years so quite feasibly. Can say, so we can say that Hubble... Uh, beat all the odds and expectations definitely definitely and so uh, when the james webb uh, space telescope came into place when the project started and how it is different than hubble so it's different in a number of key ways firstly it's bigger so astronomers as i said before astronomers like bigger glass, more collecting area. We're obsessed with bigger and bigger telescopes. We're now building one in Chile, which mm -hmm. is a 30-meter diameter. We can't send that sort of thing yeah. into space. Um, but it's still a lot bigger. So Hubble was 2.5-meter. James Webb is going to be 6.5-meter diameter. Um, so that is really just for sensitivity. More collecting area means you collect more light from each object so you can see more. So then you can also see things that are further away. And that's actually a key aspect of the other main difference is things that are further away look redder. So this is because of a weird Doppler effect that we call redshift in astronomy, where the further away you look, the redder objects appear just because the light itself is being stretched by the expansion of the universe. Mm -hmm. It's a very weird effect, but it just means that things look redder. So, because I, I just interrupt you, sure. uh, because I remember that uh, that infamous uh, Hubble picture, and they said like, 
we can see this picture and there's in the background like reddish spots there and they said like web will be able to pick those ones exactly so hubble was most sensitive in the visible wavelength range so the same as we see it can see things mm -hmm. that we would see blue as blue and up to where we can see as red pretty much it did push a little bit into the infrared which are wavelengths that are just slightly longer mm -hmm. than we can see ourselves Web will push even further into the near-infrared and what we call the mid-infrared, much, much way longer wavelengths. And this is important for the astronomy because, as you said, those most distant, those smallest, faintest galaxies appear redder to us because of the redshift, just because of their distance. So if we're more sensitive to red light and infrared light, then we can see those more easily. And James Webb has been optimized and designed specifically to see in that infrared wavelength. So one of the things, for instance, is that the mirror is gold. It's a gold-plated mm -hmm. mirror. And that's because gold is the best thing for reflecting uh, infrared light. So any infrared light that comes onto our mirror gets reflected very nicely into our instrumentation. So uh, the one of the objectives is to explore those, you know, reddish dots uh, uh, somewhere in the sky and what they can tell us what kind of data we can collect and what can we know what kind of maybe hypothesis what discoveries we can you know make yeah so james webb's one of its primary science goals is to push deeper than hubble and as you said look at those really faint red dots that you can just about see in the deepest hubble imaging james webb will be able to see those in great detail both imaging and spectroscopy, because we have that capability of really dissecting the light to see more detail about uh, how that light has been emitted by the object. Um, what this will tell us is we're pushing right back to the very first galaxies that formed in the universe. So Hubble can see to about a billion years after the Big Bang. James Webb will be able to see to hundreds of million years after the Big Bang, pretty much as far as we can see. Much earlier, the universe is a thick soup and no light really mm. passes through it. We should be able to see all the way back to that horizon where we couldn't really mm. push further with, certainly with current technology. So what we expect to see? <laughs> so what we expect to see is an interesting question because to some extent, we don't really know what those galaxies are like. Um, we think that they are more compact and they... Uh, highly star-forming, so they're very active. They have a lot of new stars being formed in them. But there's a lot of uh, simulations that show different things about these galaxies, whether they form in clumps or of material that then forms into a galaxy or whether it's more little galaxies that then later on will merge together. Uh, there's uh, several hypotheses, and James Webb should be able to sort between those, but at the moment it's... And uh, from those primary galaxies, the other galaxies, let's say ours, which is like a younger one version, they had to come up from, from that, you know, previous galaxies, let's say. Yeah, so what we know very well is what galaxies look like today because the galaxies all around us are like that. Um, we don't see many of those because obviously we only see galaxies today that are very close to us and there are very few of those. For much more galaxies in the middle distance that we know quite well, we can see those in relatively good detail with Hubble. Um, and there are lots of them, so statistically we can tell what sort of galaxies those are. But then as we push further away, things get fainter 
and we don't really mm. know about that era very much at all. We'd really like to know more details about how the galaxies started off in their formation and then how they evolve at that point. And James Webb will yeah. give us a lot of indication into that. Any any other objects in the night sky we will point uh, Webb to? Oh, many more. So there are three key science objectives of James Webb. One is the beginning of the universe and the we call it the era of realization, mm -hmm. where this dense soup turns into the first galaxies. That's, incidentally, my favorite area. That's where my science research is based in. But we'll also, another aspect of the, the infrared wavelength range is that infrared light doesn't get absorbed by dust. So the universe, mm -hmm. it might seem really strange, but the universe is actually very dusty for little particles all over the place. And light that we see, visible light, actually gets absorbed by the dust and doesn't pass through it. So it's like having a cloud around objects that you can't see through. Mm -hmm. So this affects galaxies nearby. We can't see into those galaxies in, in uh, very far because there's a lot of dust in them. And also in our own galaxy, we can't see very well into the regions where young stars are forming because it's very dusty, there's thick, dense dust around there. Now, that's only true in the visible light. So visible light gets absorbed by the dust and doesn't pass mm -hmm. through. Infrared light doesn't. It just passes straight through. So if you have a sensitive infrared telescope, it's like you can just see through that dust. So we can see the stars in those star-forming regions in our own galaxy, and we can see the centre of galaxies or the centres of mm -hmm. other galaxies further away. So it lets us look through things that Hubble just can't see. So it's actually, I mean, it's... Uh, it's going to be a whole new view of even things that are quite close to us. And Hubble has looked at those regions, but in a completely different way. It just sees big black regions of dust where we'll see, with James Webb, we'll see lots of young stars forming. And that will really tell us how stars form. Of course, we also don't know so much as we'd like about the evolution and origin of stars themselves, even over billions of those in our own galaxy. And how about uh, exoplanets? So that's exactly right. So I said there are three key areas, yeah. and the third one is obviously exoplanets, which is a very popular area at the moment. And James Webb will do some amazing things for exoplanets. At the moment, it's very hard to image exoplanets to actually look at them, and Hubble struggles to do this because, again, in the visible wavelength range, they're really, really faint. One other good thing about the near-infrared is that cold objects, which planets are cold objects, they don't irradiate mm -hmm. their own heat that much, only a little bit, not the same as stars. They're cold objects, and in the infrared, we can see them much better than we can in the visible. Um, so what we'll be able to do with James Webb is we'll be able to directly image some exoplanets, uh, especially if they transit in front of the sun, oh, mm -hmm. in front of their star, sorry. Um, but we'll also be able to, with our spectrographs, so we can really see the, the detail of the chemicals for emitting certain, um, certain parts of the light in our spectrum, we'll be able to actually, hopefully, uh, find out which chem chemical elements are within the atmospheres of exoplanets. So we do this by when the exoplanet passes in front of its star from where we see it, the starlight is passing then through the atmosphere of its planet. Mm -hmm. That atmosphere blocks some things. It absorbs, again, this absorption. Astronomers love absorption mm -hmm. in some cases. So it 
some elements will absorb certain bits of light and then when James Webb detects that infrared light, it can, we can analyze the spectrum and find out which elements are in the atmosphere. So this could be a key way of actually finding out whether there are things like methane, ozone, oxygen in the atmospheres of other planets. All and obviously the that's building blocks of exactly life. that's exactly what we want to see in exoplanets <laughs> is the possibility that there could be some life on those planets. But there will be no like uh 90% chance that it will say that yeah that there's a life. <laughs> no. <laughs> just get the let's say properties of that planet which can hold and sustain the life. Yes, we'll be able to say with very good accuracy i hope that that planet has an atmosphere that contains methane or oxygen or water perhaps but we still obviously won't know if there's life on the planet for that we're gonna yeah we we're gonna have, have to do to something more allow ourselves <laughs> <Yeah>. there <laughs> and uh, maybe it will be james webb uh, space telescope will maybe will be used to, to explore our solar system that's true so because of where james webb is positioned. It's not in orbit about the Earth. It's actually sent beyond the moon. Uh, this is to take it away from mm -hmm. the infrared radiation of uh, Earth predominantly and take it further away from the sun as well. We won't be able to see any planets that are closer to the sun than Earth, um, but we will be able to view, for instance, the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, asteroids in the main belt, comets, uh, Kuiper belt objects, those very distant cold objects for Uh, Pluto is now classified as one of those yeah. objects. <laughs> um, so we will look at some sort of system objects for sure as well. Um, because of James Webb has a, a very small field of view compared to Hubble, we'll be looking more at elements of mm -hmm. moons of Jupiter, for instance. So one of the things is the volcanoes that we see on some of those Uh, icy planet, oh, sorry, icy moons. We'll be able to look in detail at the chemical composition of the plumes of those volcanoes, mm -hmm. for instance, which is also very interesting. Uh, Euro Europa comes to mind. Yes, they, exactly. Will it be able to detect something more because it, it's covered in, a, you know, I don't know how much kilometers of ice, so it will be able to detect something more? We are certainly, there are plans to observe Europe already. Um, so that will definitely be observed. Um, I think that the looking, if you really want to know the internal composition mm -hmm. and dynamics of these moons, looking at the moons where there's some sort of volcanic activity and plumes such as uh, Enceladus are the, the really good examples of mm -hmm. those. That's where you can really find something. But the, also things like the atmosphere of Titan is another thing we could try and observe with JWST and really get the chemical composition of that. So, and uh, now let's talk a bit about the, all the project. Uh, when it started, let's say, because there were some delays and postponements. So can you explain all this, you know, how it went? Sure. So actually, James Webb goes right back to just after the launch of Hubble. So in 96, some guys at NASA drew on a napkin. There's a really nice, if you can find this on Google, please do, because there's a really nice yeah. drawing of the original design of JWST, which was on a piece of white cloth, because they really did just do it in a restaurant one night. Um, and that de developed. Space missions always take a long time to develop and come together. Uh, ESA started building its contributed instruments in the 2000s and actually delivered them in 2012. Um, that was when the launch was obviously going to yeah. be middle of that decade. 
the problem that James Webb had was it's very complicated. So it has a, a number of elements that are unique and required a lot of first research and design and then also a lot of testing. So it has this six and a half meter diameter mirror and to fit in the spacecraft, the rocket, to take it into space, that has to be folded up. And that folding up has never really been done before. We haven't deployed such a large piece of equipment autonomously in space before. And also deployed has to be the big sunshade. Mm -hmm. So James Webb has to be kept very cold. So it has this tennis court size shade um, to uh, stop the heat from the sun hitting the, the instrumentation that needs to be in the cold and the mirror as well needs to be cold. Why is that so important to have this uh, temperature, low temperature? So the infrared is also, if you're aware of like infrared cameras that we use on Earth, one of the uses we use is to look at a, a person or something and you see it as heat. Yeah. So infrared really is just heat. So if you have your instrumentation, the mirror hot, all you see is a background of those rather than the astronomical objects you're looking at. So you have to keep everything cold so then the light coming from the distant objects can be detected above your baseline thermal emission, so the heat radiation of the thing itself. So that's why we need to be cold. The problem with a sunshade is it's extremely big, so it also has to be deployed. But because it's so big, it also has to be very thin. So it's made of this really lightweight uh, special... It's called Keplon aluminium, and it's extremely lightweight, thin, resilient. But unfolding this mm -hmm. is quite a big task. I think it has to be um, has to be folded up to a, a meter sort of size to fit in the rocket. But it's tennis court size when it's unfolded. And this took a lot longer to test than they hoped. One of the main issues is that it's designed to be unfolded in space where there's no gravity, and it's not really doesn't really ever need to be folded up yeah. again after that. But in testing, they have to repeatedly unfold it, fold it up, unfold it. And in gravity, that's quite difficult. You can't rely on the pulleys for the, and the systems mm -hmm. that it will use in space. You have to do it much more carefully because it always has that pull of the Earth, which it isn't designed for, really. So testing just takes a long time. So each unfolding and folding takes on the order of months, and they... They hadn't expected it to be so tricky, but it is the first time it's ever been done. And we have actually one more of these to do, um, but it's been done tens of times before that. So um, it was delayed more of the all the testing, that it uh, took a lot of time, or there was some malware or no, accidents, the, let's say? There wasn't really any major problems. Mostly it was just taking a little bit longer than it should have. We also have to do, because it goes up in a rocket, which is very uh, intense environment, we have to do vibration testing and acoustic testing, so like really loud sounds like it will get in the rocket. And on one of those occasions, they did have a little bit of an accident where they vibrated mm -hmm. it and some of, the, some of the components weren't quite fitted right. So they didn't last in the vibration as well as possible, but that's been fixed now and it's the last vibration test it had, everything was fine for this. Uh, but again, it just adds a few bits of delay here and there when things like that don't quite go as planned. And on, on uh, what kind of rocket it will be launched? Uh? So that's actually a good question for the Europeans because our main contribution to a project is actually the launching it. Mm -hmm. So it's going up on an Ariane Space Ariane 5, uh, which is... 
uh, ESA's main contribution. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll be launched from French Guiana, which is ESA's spaceport uh, in South America. Um, so yeah, we're really looking forward and a little bit nervous, but looking forward yeah, to the fact that we're a launching a <laughs> really huge responsibility for Europeans Ex- to take. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Because uh, how much all the project costs? So the estimates vary on depending how you calculate it. I think eight billion dollars was the last estimate I heard. Although that's probably NASA's contribution. But yeah, so, so it's a significant amount of some some uh, you know responsibility on the shoulders of yes, Europeans not to mess up with this one. But the Ariane five is extremely extremely reliable. I think they're on eighty launches without a problem in a row now. So so maybe that's why they choose this one. <laughs> Yes, and also another good feather in the cap for Europe is they chose it because America didn't have the capability. They just didn't have a yeah. rocket that was good enough, and we do. <laughs> so uh, what kind of ins- main instruments it carries? Uh, you mentioned four. there's four of them. So, Yes, uh, James Webb has four instruments. Uh, the main imaging uh, instrument is near CAM which was an American instrument built by the University of Arizona primarily. And that is more of a Hubble-style instrument. It's just concentrating on taking beautiful infrared images. Um, so that'll be the, the prime instrument for getting the headline-grabbing uh, public release images. They will be beautiful, hopefully, from James Webb and NIRCAM. Then NIRSPEC is the main spectrograph, so that's the instrument I work on and is an ESA-provided instrument. And we're really... Uh, concentrating and getting this fine detail through the spectroscopy. And it's an amazing instrument because it's the first time we'll ever have the capability to take spectrum of more than one object at once in space. This is something we've done on the ground mm-hmm. quite a lot, get spectra for hundreds of objects in one go. But it's hard to do in space because you have to have something that's configurable in order to select what targets you want the spectra for. And in NERSPEC, we have done this by having an array of quarter of a million little shutters that open and close individually, so we can block out most of the light in our field of view and just let through the hundred or so mm-hmm. objects that we want uh, the spectra for. This is an amazing device. This is, again, one of the, the best pieces of research and development in the, in the project. Actually contributed, to be fair to them, by NASA. It's a, uh, it was actually built in uh, Goddard Space Flight mm-hmm. Center, um, but then integrated into the NIRSPEC instrument, um, which also shows the international cooperation that goes into this sort of mission. Um, but that'll be amazing to yeah. to get the spectra for hundreds of objects at once rather than just one at a time. Yeah. Uh, the third instrument is the mid-infrared instrument. So this is MIRI, and that looks slightly longer wavelength than the other two. The other two are in the near-infrared, so that's uh, slightly longer than Hubble wavelengths up to, for those that are into their wavelength, that's five micron is the cutoff point. Longer than that... MIRI will look. So this is looking at even colder objects, even more distant objects. Um, it also looks at a different part of the chemistry for nearby objects, just because those elements emit in that wavelength range rather than near infrared. And this has a capability to do imaging and spectroscopy at those wavelengths. So it's a very versatile instrument. 
And the fourth one is a Canadian yeah. instrument. Sorry, Miri is a European instrument as well. We have a, a lot of American input as well. It's sort of almost half and mm -hmm. half, Miri. Then the fourth instrument is uh, delivered by the Canadian Space Agency, and this is NIRIS, and it also includes a fine, guide, the fine guidance sensor for the telescope, so it's a thing that makes sure we're pointed in the right direction. And they also have the capability to do spectroscopy as well with that instrument. Yeah, but uh, you mentioned that it will be sent off quite far away from the Earth, yes. and thinking about, you know, remembering what happened with Hubble, and so we will not uh, be able to service it. And if anything goes wrong, it's doomed. So I wouldn't go so, quite so negatively full as yeah. that. But <laughs> you have to twist a bit. <laughs> yeah. So I would say that firstly, a lot of our delays were because we were extensively testing. And this is something that didn't really happen on Hubble so much. They cut out some of the testing so that it could be launched sooner. And they paid the price of that in the end it was fixed so it was fine james webb has gone in the other philosophy in that they are really really testing heavily because they know it has to be correct and it will be correct when it's launched because of that testing it is put along a much further away so we probably won't be able to service it especially as we don't have any shuttle capability for instance again i would say that maybe in the future someone will have a capability to do autonomous um, something mm -hmm. servicing probably most likely James Webb isn't designed to have instruments removed and new ones put in Hubble that was actually a design requirement so it was designed at the beginning for that to be able to be done James Webb it wasn't but James Webb's lifetime is actually limited by the fuel on board how long we last will be when we run out of juice that keeps mm -hmm. us pointing in the right direction um we can refuel externally, so maybe if we last long enough and the technology is available from a space company who are into autonomous operations further away from Earth, for instance, uh, maybe they could refuel us autonomously. So that isn't yeah. a completely uh, out there suggestion. So what is the primary lifespan of it? So we're, our requirement is six years and our aim is 10 years. We're pretty confident it'll be 10 years. Um, then the, as I said, the lifespan is dependent on the fuel and the fuel is also used not just for pointing us, but the initial, uh, journey. So the orbit insertion from when we go from earth to the point where mm -hmm. JWST will sit for its entire mission, that's quite a critical. So if we do that in the most optimal way, we'll have a lot of fuel left for pointing and we could even last 18, 20 years on the original fuel. If we're not quite so optimal, then we'll only get the 10 years. And uh, uh, what will happen in case of any micrometeorites, any debris? or uh, it, it, it will be set off far away, so maybe not so much any debris, but uh, some yeah. micrometeorites, is there a worry? So debris, all right, because it's much further away from the Earth. We're not really in danger of being hit by human-made debris. Yeah. There's always a chance of micrometeorites. Um, our sunshield, for instance, can be hit by uh, way more than the calculated uh, number of micrometeorites that it's likely to be hit by before it loses mm -hmm. its ability to keep things cold. You can always be unlucky and have a micrometeorite hit the mirror, for instance. But again, little, little impacts don't have so much of an issue. 
So I think we should be okay. It should be side. pretty reliable. Yes. I so. <laughs> and I just remember one question that I, I, I think I had to start our conversation. <laughs> Uh, who is James Webb? Ah, okay. <laughs> so this is an interesting question. Also because, if I can say just a little bit about the testing, one of our yeah. test phases, we wanted to do a full test of the optics of a telescope, but in space environment. So we had to put it in the largest um, cryo-vacuum chamber, so taking it down to the temperature of space and also the vacuum of space in this big chamber that's in the Johnson Space Center in Houston. So we put it in there. And this chamber is interesting because it's actually a national historic monument in the US because it's the one they used for the Apollo program. They tested all of their Apollo equipment in the same chamber. And NASA actually had to get permission this time to use it again mm -hmm. because it's owned now by the National yeah. Park Service. Uh, but this is interesting for James Webb because he was the second NASA administrator and he was the one that was in charge of the beginning of the Apollo program. So he was actually responsible for most of it, uh, overseeing most of the development of the Apollo program in its early days. So it's quite a nice uh, circular history that yeah. we used for chamber that he was involved in and then named our mission after him. And is there any other, you know, projects of space telescopes planned or, or in agenda somewhere after James Webb? So not just after James Webb. I mean, on both sides of the Atlantic for a, a number of projects that are going forwards, as well as ones planned way in the future. So, for instance, the Europeans, ESA, are currently designing and I think have already started building the Euclid Space Telescope, which again is actually in the infrared. But rather than JWST's very focused, small field of view, really looking at individual objects, Euclid is going to try and do a full sky survey to quite a depth. And this is looking into the intriguing idea of dark matter. So it's really trying to find the motions of all of these galaxies using the infrared survey telescope um, to find out where things are moving like they shouldn't if it wasn't dark matter, if that makes sense. So they really want to find out why things move like they do in the universe and if things are moving uh, in a way that shows us that dark matter is in those areas and how, it's, how it could form and clump. So that's Euclid. I think it's launching or due to launch now in 2023. So it's not that far mm -hmm. off. On the American side, they also have WFIRST, which is another survey telescope. Uh, also in the infrared, actually. That'll be more spectroscopy-based as well. Mm -hmm. um, and there are many other uh, missions, the other wavelengths in terms of telescopes as well. So ESA will have Athena, which is an X-ray telescope. Uh, I think it's for the uh, 19, so 1930s, for 2030s. <laughs> uh, so it's a little way off, yeah. but it's, um, it's, it, it's currently being developed and it is funded through to its completion. And then there are lots of slightly more design phase fantasy missions where the next thing after JWST, which will be even bigger, things like Louvois, uh, is going to hopefully be a UV optical infrared telescope, even bigger for JWST, have to fold in much more intricate manner, but we'll be able to see even further, deeper, see exoplanets in more detail. Sort of and what's the difference uh, by having the space telescope somewhere floating in the space and having some built on the ground? So telescopes on the ground are really good because you can build them very big 
and you can keep replacing the instrumentation as much as you want. And the instruments themselves can be big and heavy. The problem on the ground is the air around us. So the air just isn't good for letting light through. This is really good for us as humans because things like UV radiation from the sun doesn't hit us. But unfortunately, that means that we can't do UV astronomy from the ground, really, because all of that radiation, or most of it, never gets to the ground. So, for instance, one of the, uh, some of the best space mission telescopes were UV telescopes, like Galax, mm -hmm. from a, a decade or so ago. So they were really UV-centric, ultraviolet, to look in these wavelengths. And then in the infrared, telescopes on the ground suffer from the fact that the IR radiation, the infrared radiation, uh, is absorbed by water in our atmosphere. So again, it doesn't reach the ground very well, or at least some of it mm -hmm. is absorbed, and we so faint objects you just wouldn't be able to see. So the atmosphere around the Earth, which is very good for us, for astronomy, we're not so keen on it. <laughs> and finally, so what is the date set for the launch of James Webb? So James Webb will be launched March next year, so March 2021. So the there date. will be no delays? <laughs> there will be no more delays. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully. So, yeah. so being seriously, the, the we do have one more uh, vibration test, another folding, unfolding, before the whole thing then gets shipped down to a spaceport. So you never know what can happen. Hopefully nothing will, but a month or so is never off the cards. We're still sticking with March 2021 as the launch date. That's the official line. And fingers crossed for it will definitely be then, but I'm sure it won't be too long after that. And uh, how long we will have to wait for the deployment in our orbit and maybe the first pictures? So the commissioning phase, when we deploy everything and make sure the instruments are working, and actually that's done while it's traveling mm -hmm. to its final point, takes about six months. So six months after launch, we'll have completed that and start taking real science data as proposed by the communities. But we'll actually take some early data as well uh, to really show the public what we can do with a telescope. And that could be anything, depending how commissioning goes, the timeline for that could be three to four months mm -hmm. after launch. So oh, yeah. definitely, yeah, let's wait. First of all, let's wait for the launch. Well, <laughs> so, no, I would be positive and say yeah. spring 2021. I can't definitely. believe I will be glued <laughs> to my computer watching. <laughs> so thank you, Tim, for coming up It's on my our podcast. Ir visiems ačiū, kad žiūrėjote. Atsisveikinsime su visais. Tik priminsiu, kad mūsų galite klausytis ir Spotify ir SoundCloud programėlėse, savo telefonuose, paremkit mūsų Patreon'e. Ir iki kito karto, visiems iki.